When we talk about the history of the southwestern United States, we're mostly thinking about the people's history. But everybody comes from somewhere looking for land, food, and a place to call home. I'm Katie Stone, and here at the Children's Hour, we wanted to learn more about the history of the place we call home. In this series, we're diving into how the high desert region of the southwestern United States came to be what it is today, and who's shaped that history along the way. This is A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. We come back to our story after one of the biggest turning points in our region's history. After decades of growing Spanish colonialism, indigenous people led the Pueblo Revolt. As tribal historian Diego Medina told us, it was the first real revolution on American soil, driving the Spanish out of their settlements built on indigenous lands. They had much of their land and way of life back, but that wouldn't last forever. In this episode, we're talking about life after the Pueblo Revolt and the beginning of a new colonial era in the Southwest and how one house tucked away in the New Mexico countryside can tell us so much about that period of time. Are we going to Los Luceros? You bet. What do you know about Los Luceros? Well, I know it's a little north of Santa Fe. That's true, but there's so much else to learn. On our virtual field trip to Los Luceros, we talked with Carlin Stewart. She's the regional manager of the Los Luceros Historic Site. Los Luceros right now is 148 acres, and it encompasses a historic orchard, bosque, it's right on the Rio Grande. I want you to imagine a buttery yellow, two-story house in the shape of a big square. It's got balconies that wrap around the second floor with beautiful views of the river and sprawling farmlands around it. But when Los Luceros was built around 1700, Rebecca Ward, who also works at the Los Luceros historic site, told us that this is not what the house looked like. It would have been one story. It would have looked like a square with a hollow middle. It would have had the big arches where people could bring in carts with horses to weather attacks if those were happening. And that is a good reminder that we're talking about a time where indigenous people were fighting back against brutality and control by the Spanish. So what do we know about who lived at Los Luceros before it was built? Historically, the Tewa speakers were here in this land way before the Spanish got here. But we know from archaeologist Mary Wiaki and her historic map of the Pueblo tribes that the Spanish brought disease and violence to the areas that they colonized. That changed the regional map forever. In many places, once thriving villages were left abandoned. They had no choice but to leave and join their neighbors, their friends, and create new establishments. And for around 12 years, communities reshaped. They built into larger villages, and then the Spanish returned. And this time, they had cannons. 
These were big, powerful weapons that the Puebloans didn't have. They couldn't drive them out again. And so a blended world started to emerge in the Southwest. Trade has been a very established part of the United States Southwest long, long before the Spanish ever had an inkling that the Americas even existed. You know, there are ancient roads that people still use to this day that we can also see that aren't used anymore. We have found things in archaeological sites in this state that come from the Sea of Cortez. So these very huge established trade routes are something that the Spanish definitely took advantage of. And this was how Los Luceros started to take shape as one of the many haciendas responsible for fueling the area's growing economy. Can anybody tell me what a hacienda means? I know. Haciendas were large estates used by Spanish colonizers to live on and oversee food and trade items being made. Yes, and for our friends in New Mexico, you may recognize this term. Spanish people took over these properties under something called a land grant. And Pueblo people were given land areas called Pueblo Leagues. A well-connected or wealthy Spanish person could go to the Spanish colonial government and say, this piece of land is unoccupied by Spanish people, and I would like it. And as long as there wasn't another Spanish person who had a claim to that land, usually the Spanish government said, okay, you want this land, you can have it. So different parts of the property were built during different phases. The original land grant was claimed by Sebastian Martin Serrano in 1703. It was over 51,000 acres. We're pretty sure that the Hacienda, at least some iteration of it, was built during that time. But the oldest date we have for the Hacienda, the oldest official one, is 1775. Martin Serrano was a powerful figure in his community, and Spain's return to the region after the revolt. At just 27 years old, he planned a 24-room house for the property, called a plazuela, which the locals called La Soledad. Then, he set his sights on profiting from the other 51,000 acres. But even while he was building his new home, experts think he relied on the thousands of years of previous indigenous presence to create the house and the farm. When archaeological testing was completed, it showed that there were structural stones of the foundation that was an indigenous field house. Plus, the property already had access to the local ditch irrigation system. Imagine a system of little canals running through a community. They move water to different places for irrigating crops. And they were originally set up by the local indigenous people long before the Spanish arrived. Which gets me wondering, who actually constructed this estate? Here's Mary Wiaki. They were bringing Native Americans from South America. They speak about Tewa occupation, but because of the bad taste that was left in the Tewa people's mouths, a lot of them refused to help with the building of these structures here in the Northern Valley. This was a time when women strictly did the housework. They were workers as much as they were moms. And when the Spanish came overseas to colonize the Southwest, women mostly were not a part of those missions. That led to many South American women being forcibly displaced to work on properties like Los Luceros. 
they were bringing forced women to cook, women to do textile, women to do other um, menial labors, plus in capulating their children to do a lot of the labor. And without women, colonizers couldn't start new families to live on their estates. So many Spanish men forced Pueblo women into marriages and started their own bloodlines. But it wasn't so simple or innocent as people falling in love and getting married and having a family. There was often a strong power dynamic and benefit at play. A lot of times they hid that woman that uh, they married into their families. They, they didn't let her be Native American anymore. She was to dress, act, speak, everything in, in that European context. And once in a while, you know, there's stories that say these women would sneak off and meet with their brothers and sisters, you know, and that would save that hacienda sometimes from being burned down. So, yes, I think there was an advantage to having a Native American wife or, you know, your children. And, but it was kind of a sad deal because your little kids would never know your side as a Pueblo person. Even today, experts have found the remnants of those relationships in the soil. Another means of trade was you had talented potters. They loved their little soup bowls and their plates, and we never used platters, and we didn't know what a soup bowl was, man. So they're actually commissioning these Pueblo women to do a lot of items that they were used to seeing, candle holders, platters, soup bowls, cups, pitchers, flower pots. And these items you find in archeological sites and we can date things just by finding what's in the ground. And the men in my village, men were the only ones who were allowed to do textile work. So now you have these Native American weavers working alongside Spanish weavers. Cotton's gone, but wool's big. So they're trading technologies and they're creating a new system of trade. With new industry came a culture pulling from all the different groups of people living in the Southwest. Take, for example, the fluffy, long-haired churro sheep brought from Spain by Juan de Oñate in the 1500s. Oñate was really credited as starting the livestock industry in New Mexico. And so the churro sheep, you know, became a huge economic driver of New Mexico. Huge. And I mean, these, these sheep numbers in the span of from 1850 to 1880 went from like 300,000 sheep to 3 million sheep in New Mexico. And so this was a huge driver. But it also became a very important part of different indigenous cultures, especially the Diné or Navajo people, really um, took the sheep herding and made it an essential part of their culture, of their livelihoods. And so that was a really big change, um, is the churro sheep wool being created into tapestries and weavings and clothes and all that. And so it became um, a really big part of the driver. So we still have Navajo churro sheep on site here to tell this story because they really revolutionized New Mexico for a very long time. In the 1700s, Santiago Lucero married the granddaughter of Sebastian Martin Lucerano and moved on to the property. He came from a powerful local family known as one of the founders of Santa Fe. La Soledad eventually became Los Luceros, after his family's name. 
All of this movement and change happened in a century or so following the Pueblo Revolt. Big political shifts were happening across the world, too. Different countries were trading with each other and looking to expand their colonies. You can see that story in the architecture of Los Luceros. The Hacienda now has a second story, and it's in what's called a Greek Revival style. Um, And that was added in the early to mid-1800s by the man who gave Los Luceros its current name, Julian Lucero. Julian Lucero himself lived under three different political regimes while he was the owner of Los Luceros. The Spanish originally, when he first claimed the hacienda and bought a lot of the land from his cousins, and then Mexican, because the Mexican-American War is what ended with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. And then, like at the very last 10 years of his life, he lived through the beginning of American colonialism. All of these influences really changed Los Luceros. The hacienda has a whitewash on it. The walls are white now, and that is very European. And that was made as a decision by Julian Lucero to make the walls white because it's very colonialistic to do. It makes your house stand out. It made it like a Spanish house instead of a native looking house. And so you see like all of these influences really coalescing right under Julian Lucero's time here. But around and even within Los Luceros, interaction between different groups of people was diversifying the entire region. Over time, with different groups starting families with each other, the population of New Mexico became more and more diverse, creating their own identity, Geniceros. Again, Mary Wiaki. The word means mixed blood. So you're a Spanish speaker, you're a Tewa speaker, you can speak a little bit of Apache, you might know Comanche, uh, you know, and you can and, and come in and occupy these spaces without too much uh, uh, somebody being angry with who you are. By the end of the 18th century, around a third of New Mexico's population was Hinicero, and their identities weren't so simple as native, Anglo-Saxon, or Spanish— Each tribe carried their own traditions, language, and identity. And the region was about to get even more diverse. In our next and final episode, the U.S. arrives. We've already covered so much. How will we fit it all in just one more episode? You'll have to tune in and see, but for now, let's review what we've learned today. True or false, Los Luceros is in southern New Mexico near the New Mexico border. False, it's actually a property of nearly 150 acres that's just north of Santa Fe. True or false, when the Spanish came back 12 years after they were pushed out in the Pueblo Revolt, they brought newer, stronger weapons that the native people didn't have. True. True or false, when the Spanish returned, they were just as violent towards the Puebloan people as they had been initially. False. 
this time, the Spanish were still antagonistic towards the native people, but somewhat less so since their communities began to coexist. Ready for another? True or false? Trade and trade routes didn't exist in North America until Europeans colonized it. Native people had well-established trade routes before Europeans first came to this continent. True or false, the Spanish government allocated land to wealthy and or well-connected Spaniards so long as other Spaniards hadn't already laid claim to that area. True. Although there were already indigenous people on many parts of this land, the Spanish government felt that they had the right to determine its ownership. Next up, true or false, the hacienda on Los Luceros, called La Soledad, is built above remnants of Pueblo farming structures. True. Last one, true or false, Churro sheep are native to North America and have always been used by indigenous people. False. In fact, Juan de Oñate brought over a few from Spain in the 1500s. Over here, their population exploded and native people began hurting them and incorporating them into art. I think I'm really getting the hang of that game. I'm Katie Stone, and you're listening to the Children's Hour, A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. This was Episode 5 in our six-part series. Find a learn-along guide to accompany this episode, which meets national education standards, at childrenshour.org history. This program is made possible in part with the support from the New Mexico Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities or the New Mexico Humanities Council. If you'd like a more in-depth explanation of all of that intricate history, you'll find our virtual field trip to Los Luceros online at childrenshour.org history. The Children's Hour is produced by the Children's Hour Incorporated, a New Mexico nonprofit. A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids was written and produced by me, Katie Stone, and by Christina Stella. We had help from Julia Wolf, Isaac Lacerda, and Lily Mae Williams Hobbs. Our series theme music is performed by Marlon Magdalena, with additional music for this episode by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to our guests, Carly Stewart and Rebecca Ward from Los Luceros Historic Site in Hispaniola, New Mexico, and archaeologist Mary Wiaki from the Center for New Mexico Archaeology in Santa Fe, New Mexico. We had additional support from our history review team, whose members are listed at our website. If you like what you just heard and want to support our work, head to childrenshour.org and visit us anytime on social media at TCH Radio. Thanks for listening to the Children's Hour, Kids Public Radio. Kids Public Radio.